grace, which is God's undeserved love. Mercy, which is God withholding the punishment that sinners like us deserve for breaking His holy will in peace, which is that state of heart and mind where things are right between us and a holy God. Those are yours. Grace, mercy, and peace are yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, upon the cross extended, when I survey the wondrous cross, in the cross of Christ I glory, drawn to the cross. We are in that season of the Christian church here where we look at the cross of Christ in a little bit different way, in a little bit different way than we do regularly as Christians. I think you would agree that during the Lenten season, we stand in faith and look with the eyes of faith at the cross of Christ, and we ask that God, the Holy Spirit, would work repentance in us. As we see the love our Savior has for us, the love that led him to give his life as a ransom for us. But there's something else we seek every Lenten season. Don't we also ask to not be left unchanged by our time at the foot of the cross? We ask God, the Holy Spirit, really to change us, to work new life, so that when we go out those doors, we live a new life of repentance and faith and service to God. Let me give you a couple examples from those hymns that I just mentioned, often sung during the Lenten season, and other times of the church here, familiar Christian hymns from our hymnal. It's interesting what the hymn writers thought and what generations of Christians have thought about spending time at the foot of the cross and what they want to leave with after they've been at Christ's cross. Listen to the closing verse of three of those hymns, Upon the Cross Extended. This is the last verse. Your cords of love, my Savior, bind me to you forever. I am no longer mine. To you I gladly tender all that my life can render, and all I have to you resign. Another example from When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, maybe a little more familiar to us, the closing verse, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a tribute far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. One last example from the hymn Drawn to the Cross. To pledge my labor willingly, which shall so sweet a service be that angels well might envy me. Christ crucified, I come. Yes, during the Lenten season, during our worship this morning, we come to the foot of the cross. We ask God the Holy Spirit to change us. And we do one other thing, I would say. We also invite the world to come and stand with us at the cross. As we heard in our Old Testament lesson, He's giving his life for the nations. As we heard in our gospel lesson, Jesus is giving his life for the nations. We invite one and all to come to the cross. And so we direct our attention to the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Those verses 
that we're going to share in our sermon are printed on the bottom of page 9 in the service folder. If you'd like to follow along as I read them, 1 Corinthians 1, 22 to 25, and note the perspective of time at the cross. Yes, Jews ask for signs, Greeks desire wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is offensive to Jews and foolishness to Greeks, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. We preach Christ crucified because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than man. Let's take the thought, and it's on the top of the next page, let's take that thought for the theme of our sermon this morning. You as individuals, you as a congregation, we as a synod, what do we do? We preach Christ crucified. And today, take two thoughts with you. We preach Christ crucified as the power of God, as the wisdom of God. If you read the letter that we call First Corinthians, you would quickly come to the conclusion that people were, let's say, reshaping the cross, trying to get a little bit different perspective of the cross. Maybe it was false teachers that had infiltrated the church at Corinth. Maybe it was just the Christians at Corinth trying to fit in with the, the people around them, the culture around them. But it seems as though they were downplaying the cross of Christ. They were a little embarrassed by it, let's say. Paul begins this lengthy letter with an encouragement to get back to the basics. To remind those Corinthian Christians, this is what it's all about. Christ crucified. Come to the cross. Invite the world to come to the cross and there see the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, we have to be careful when we talk about the cross as the power of God. Some people have misunderstood what we mean by that. Let me give you an example. There's a story I've told or I've heard a number of times. that It's probably have some one of those urban legends, but has some basis in fact. During World War II, imagine a soldier coming under heavy fire, bullets whizzing past him. He jumps into a foxhole that's empty. Down in the bottom of the foxhole, he finds a crucifix on a gold chain, perhaps dropped by another soldier, perhaps dropped by a chaplain who was out ministering to the soldiers. But his comrades overhear him as the bullets are whizzing by. He's rubbing the cross and he's yelling to them, how do you make this thing work? How do you make this thing work? Now we see people view the cross like that, like it's a good luck charm. Once in a while you see a Major League Baseball player take a crucifix and, and touch their bat, like somehow that's going to put mojo or magic in there by, by the cross of Christ. We see people think it's a transmitter maybe to God. They, if I have a crucifix, then I can talk to God. That's not what we mean by the power of God here. We see the power of God in the cross by what Jesus did there. Now let's talk about that for a moment. Why is the cross God's power? First of all, it's his power to conquer sin. Listen to a couple of passages of Scripture. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. What does the word redeem mean? That's to buy back. I loved being a pastor in Tulsa, Oklahoma, 
there was a pawn shop across the street from the church. And in confirmation class, I could always take off my watch and say, if I took this watch that my wife gave me over to the pawn shop, maybe to get a new golf club or something, and I wanted to get it back before my wife finds out, I would have to do what? I'd have to redeem it. I'd have to buy it back. You go to a grocery store, you redeem a coupon, right? Well, that you don't literally give them the money and then they you hand them the paper and they give you the money back, but you're redeeming it. You're buying back your own money. Let's say it that way. So Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He bought us back. What's the curse of the law of God? A holy God says, be holy to be in my presence. Break the commandments in any way, in thought, word, or action, only once, and you're out forever. That's the curse of the law. So what did Christ do? He redeemed us. He bought us back by the, from the curse of the law by becoming cursed for us. And we, we heard that also in our readings this morning that He goes to the cross in our place. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, how else do we see the power of God in the cross of Christ? Another example found in, in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Let me give you an example of what that means for us, the power of the cross. The Bible pictures Satan as the finger pointer, the accuser, especially in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 12, he's the one who's pointing his finger at God's people. Well, why is he pointing at you and me? Well, he stands before a holy God and says, you're sending me to hell? What about these people? Look what they've done. Look what they've said and done and thought. How can you let that go? How is the finger pointer silenced? Jesus steps in and says, Satan, I redeemed them. I bought them back. I served their sentence on the cross. A final example of God's power in the cross. The writer to the Hebrews says this, so, so that by his death, Jesus' death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. When you and I stand at the grave of a loved one and we see the cross, we see power there, don't we? We know that that person is going to live again. That person is going to come out of that grave. I don't know if they do that out here on the East Coast when you have funerals. You probably don't have a lot of funerals, but in Redwood Falls, we had quite a few. We had a church of 800 members, had a lot of funerals. In the funeral home, we would make the sign of the cross with sand on top of the casket before they lowered it in the ground. What a great reminder for a child of God and for those grieving. The power of the cross says that person will live again. Because Jesus died in the place of sinners. Now we see the power of the cross not only to conquer sin, Satan's accusations, and death itself. But have you experienced the power of the cross in your life? I'm sure you have. The Bible describes our time at the foot of Christ's cross as a time of repentance and renewal, though. We, we leave having spent time at the cross of Christ empowered to live a new life by the good news that we hear there. Paul describes this in his letter to the Romans. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, 
so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. When you and I look at the cross and we see Christ on the cross, we see ourselves there. That's the way the Bible pictures it, that he died to sin, we are dead to sin. What a great reminder when we, when we leave here and temptations are fired at us from within and without. No! They have no power over us to say no to sin and yes to a new life in Christ. And that leads me to one of the reasons I'm here with you this morning. You may have heard that our choir, Martin Luther College's choir, is traveling out east here singing at various locations. President Zarling and I try to reach out to folks like you as our choir is touring and really present to you what we do on your behalf at Martin Luther College. There we prepare pastors, teachers, staff, ministers, but ultimately we're preparing people to take the power of the cross into pulpits like this, not that your pastor is planning to retire anytime soon, but to take the power of the cross to pulpits like this, to classrooms around this country and around the world on your behalf. That's exciting stuff. So today I ask for your prayers. I ask for your encouragement to young men and women to consider public ministry, to pray for them, to encourage them, that they would take the power of the cross on into another generation and around the world. But not only does Paul say the cross is the power of God, he also calls it the wisdom of God. Let's focus on that point for a moment or two as we consider preaching Christ crucified. Now to understand how paradoxical it would have sounded to these Corinthians to call the cross the wisdom of God, you need to understand something about their culture and their time. Not, un, not super unlike our time, but in this way, you have to remember that in the Roman Empire, only convicts, only conquered peoples, only slaves were crucified. So if you were a Roman citizen, you could not be crucified. You wouldn't be executed that way if you, if you had done a crime guilty of capital punishment, let's say. So imagine if you're a Greek Christian in Corinth, and you're trying to tell people that God, and first of all, there's only one God, and that God sent his only begotten son, who became human, and lived a perfect life, and died on that symbol of death and execution. Man. That was an uphill battle. There's a archaeological find from the first or second century AD that illustrates this. If you want to look it up on, on Google, you can, you can, uh, Google search Alexa Menos, so like Alex Amenos, Alexa Menos Graffito. It's a, a piece of graffiti that archaeologists found that somebody had scratched on a wall, similar to our, our graffiti today. But this is the picture. I'll try to give it, create it for you in words. In the picture, there's a, clearly there's a cross and a human body on a cross. But the human, the man on the cross has a donkey's head. And yes, it meant the same thing back then that it does now. And that word that I can't use in church that you would say it about some, yeah, that's, that was, that was what they thought of a donkey man back then. And then underneath the cross, there's a guy with his hands up like this. And again, it's kind of scratched. It's a little hard to see, but you can clearly see there's somebody with their hands like this looking up at the dude on the cross with the donkey head. 
and there's an inscription in Latin. It says, Alexa Menos worships his God. <laughs> we can imagine the people in the neighborhood looking at that graffiti and laughing because to them that was utter foolishness. A crucified God, and you worship him? And he did, no sense to that. It reminds us of why we still have an uphill battle when it comes to preaching Christ crucified. Yeah, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God, but the world looks at it as weakness and foolishness. And yet, how can it be the wisdom of God? Well, let's look at it from God's perspective, His eternal perspective. You know that the Bible says that Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world in 1 Peter. And then in Revelation, it says He was sacrificed, the Lamb who was sacrificed before the creation of the world. Now, from God's perspective, that means He knew what our first parents, Adam and Eve, would do. He knew that they would, they would sin. He knew what all the generations of sinners since then have done. And He would know what you and I did in our lives. And yet, in spite of that, He went ahead and created the world. In spite of that, He brought us into this world. But how to fix the problem? On the one hand, He must condemn sin. He's just and holy. On the other hand, He loves us. Brings it together there, doesn't He? Only God could think of a plan like that. Think of Isaiah's prophecy. But He, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon his upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Don't you agree that only God could think of that? To send His only begotten Son to live in our place, to never sin in thoughts, words, or actions, and then to die as the sacrifice for what we have done, that we could live with Him forever. No, we would never think of such a plan. But that was God's plan. Now the Apostle Paul in these verses acknowledges that the Jews of his day demand signs and the Greeks look for, or the, the Jews demand signs, the Greeks look for wisdom. So for us to preach Christ crucified, we have to face that fact. It's no different today, is it? Today, people would still look at what we believe as foolishness. They would still look at that idea of a crucified God as foolishness. And yet, we preach Christ crucified and say to people, that was the wisdom of God. That was the plan by which he saved us. And it wasn't just a plan. He actually carried it out in time. Oh, about 2,000 years ago, we heard in our second scripture lesson of God making him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And in Colossians, he forgave us all our sins having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. At Martin Luther College, we want our future teachers, pastors, and staff ministers to be smart. We want them to know the topics or subjects that they're going to teach. So maybe they're majoring in, in physical education or coaching or in music or something like that. They're focusing on that. We want them to be the best trained teachers we can have. And we want our pastors to, to know the wisdom of the world, to know psychology, to know what makes people tick, to, to know history and to know uh, sociology and these important things. But finally, we want them to graduate as fools. Fools who only know the cross of Christ. 
and the wisdom of God. So again, I ask for your, your prayers and your encouragement for many more to consider studying for public ministry. This morning and during our, our Lenten celebration, we come to the foot of the cross. We come to the cross, you do here every Sunday, you see the cross in the front. But this morning, I want you to look at the cross here in front with those thoughts expressed by hymn writers for generations, those thoughts expressed in Scripture. There is our mission statement, to lift high the cross, to preach Christ crucified to each other, to your congregation, to the world. And what do we see there? We see the wisdom of God, His plan that nobody else could think of. Defying all logic and reason, we see the wisdom of God. There we see the power of God to conquer sin, to silence Satan, to even conquer the grave. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you in your mission, continue to preach Christ crucified. Amen.